my name is Ben Friedman here from Film School Dropout. It is Monday, October 23rd, 5.41 p.m. recording. And if you're keeping track of that, that means Killers of the Flower Moon has indeed released. I'm at this point right now where I have not seen this movie yet. I have not been able to carve out four hours to go and see this movie in the way that I like. I'll be seeing it in the next few days. But we are still continuing on with this Martin Scorsese podcast. We are on day, I think this is his 20th film, if I'm correct. Maybe I have that wrong. But we are on day, we'll call it 20. And I am talking The Aviator. Joining me today is film critic of 25 plus years, written for Huffington Post, Philly Weekly. He, you can currently find him writing for San Francisco Chronicle, IGN. He is also the host of the movie film podcast. His co-host is Brian Hall, a TV writer. Please welcome today, Zaki Hassan, joining me. Hi, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, this is really exciting. I'm really excited to talk this movie in particular, as I am with every Martin Scorsese. I keep saying that, like, I'm excited to talk more of Scorsese. I'm always excited to do that. But I, I, I'm so interested in this movie, in this time period, uh, in Martin Scorsese's uh, filmography. Uh, for people who do not know you, could you give just kind of a brief background of who you are and your role in film criticism, I should say? Uh, well, as you said, uh, I've been a film critic for for uh, more than 25 years at this point, and you know I feel very fortunate. I attended uh, film school at uh, Columbia College Chicago uh, at the turn of the century, and uh, I would say a lot of my exposure to Scorsese happened uh, via like the much of his back catalog happened via that class mm. uh, 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 or classes at that school. And so, um, you know, I I think Scorsese is interesting to me because because I, you know, he he was my first window into a sort of more personal films that that still had sort of mass appeal, you know, and I think of things like Goodfellas and, and uh, uh, even Casino, you know, which, which uh, tip the, you know, you don't think of those as necessarily big blockbuster type movies. And yet when I was growing up, those were the ones that were quoted and really uh, well-regarded, you know, so those the, uh, Goodfellas was my, was my entree into Scorsese. Do you remember not only like necessarily like, Goodfellas being the first. Do you remember the first Scorsese film you saw in theater? First one I saw in the theater was, uh, uh, gosh, I want to say Bringing Out the Dead. Oh, okay, 1999, if I'm correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you been able to see every film of his since in theaters? No, I, I would say, yeah, oftentimes, you know, you were sort of talking about uh, killer, the the problem you're encountering with Killers of the Flower Moon. I mean, it was the the time factor was always something that I had to work around. So uh, more often than not, uh, certainly in terms of his recent output, I've I've watched uh, via, uh, um, uh, you know, screeners like uh, Academy screeners or, or just waiting until they came to streaming. But uh, you know, I, I watched Hugo in the theater, which was uh, that was a terrific experience. Uh, Gangs of New York, you know, I, I, I have like memorable experiences I've had. Actually, Aviator, I did not see in the theater. I saw that uh, when it came to DVD. Yeah, and I guess this kind of leads to the question: As we are Monday, October twenty third, did you get the chance to see Killers of the Flower Moon at this moment? I- I, I did. Yeah, I watched it yesterday. It was funny. My I had planned to watch it Thursday evening. I had reserved a ticket and 
I was teaching five classes that day from morning until afternoon. And by the time I, I my screening was at like six o'clock and by four 30, I'm like, I am going to fall asleep during this movie. And I don't, <laughs> I don't want to do that. So I canceled that. And then I was playing the next day. And then my wife was like, Hey, let's go watch this, uh, this killer, uh, killer moon thing. I was like, Oh, kills the flower. Uh, and so we did this. So, so she and I went and we took my, my 14 year old actually it was the, the three of us went. Oh, that is really fun. Did you, uh, so I guess my next question to that is, and again, this is someone who hasn't seen the movie, uh, so I will ask for no spoilers, but did you enjoy it? Very much so. Very much so. Yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, it's the best kind of movie that it captivates you as you watch. And then, you know, you spend the rest of the 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 day or the evening sort of thinking about it. And, you know, this morning as I was driving, I was like pulling up videos on YouTube about the 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 actual events of the, the Osage killings and just, you know, just wanting that context. You know, it's kind of like, oh, give me more, which which obviously was was Marty's goal, right, is to to get people aware of this thing that I have to imagine that the overwhelming majority of people watching this movie will have no idea about the events uh, uh, depicted here. And so he's, you know, I, I think it's sort of uh, d doing a really essential service. Yeah. I I'm really excited to see this movie. I, I, I had the problem of, I was camping this weekend mm -hmm. and I just, I couldn't figure out a time to go and watch this movie. Uh, I'm seeing it. And I also like, I, I could see it tonight after this recording. I so tempted myself in going to see it tonight uh, post getting back, I decided I wanted to see it at, at an IMAX theater. I wanted to see it on the best theater, the best sound. And mm -hmm. that's the experience that I'm waiting for. And that's kind of the exciting thing about Scorsese. And I think what works so well about the aviator tying it all back is Scorsese is such a visionary in his direction style. And mm -hmm. you'd mentioned Goodfellas. That's like the point where you begin like this relationship with Martin Scorsese. Do you remember, was there ever a point where you were like, I really want to study him? Like, I want to understand who he is and the films that he makes. Well, I, I, you know, I was fortunate in that my film education as a, sort of as a formal thing just sort of encompassed Scorsese right along with it. So it didn't even require me like making that that like, oh, I want to know more. It just sort of happened. You know what I mean? Yeah, And so right off, like, it's so funny because like uh, so much of my film vernacular was was beholden to Scorsese without me realizing. And I think most people, you know, whether you're talking about Taxi Driver or, or Raging Bull and just sort of like the the references, you know, like I knew the references, even if I didn't know the film. So so having an opportunity where it's like, OK, we're going to watch, you know, we're watching uh, Taxi Driver. And it's like, oh, great. And then, oh, that's that thing that I already know. Oh, we're watching, uh, you know, um uh, we're, we're doing Raging Bull now. Oh, oh, that's that's that thing that I know, you know. And so that it was sort of like, it it was like, uh, you you had a a, a combination lock all your life, and then suddenly just on its own, it's being turned this way and that way and that way, and then the lock opens. It's for me like thinking about Martin Scorsese, right? Like, because I also studied him in college. I watched a lot of his films in college, even though I never actually took film class. I took film journalism classes, which is where mm -hmm. I studied Scorsese. And I was a history major, so I did focus a lot on 20th century uh, American culture, which, of course, Scorsese is so profound, especially in the second half 
of that, even though some of his films do go backwards as the aviator does. And what I find so engaging about this material and about Martin Scorsese himself is every movie is tonally distinct. And that's kind of bringing me into the aviator, which is this movie that feels so different in his filmography and yet shares so much of the thematic values that the other movies aspire slash succeed at doing of what was your first experience with the aviator? I know you said you watched it on DVD for the first time. I also watched it at home for the first time. This was the first year that I think I had finished the movie. I had put it in from beginning to end. I think I had watched this movie throughout, but it was always like kind of snippets or scenes or like watching it on TBS for a little bit, then watching the second half later, all that. This I watched it two times in preparation for this episode. What's your relationship though with Aviator? Do you remember watching it for the first time? Yeah, yeah. It well, you know, I I always joke about this that the it, initially uh, watching it, and obviously DiCaprio is fantastic in it, but but reflexively, I'm like, he's not Howard Hughes. Terry mm. O'Quinn is Howard Hughes, you know, because I sure. saw The Rocketeer when I was <laughs> I was you know 11 years. Yeah. Results so in my mind, I always joke about that, but but I I think for me it was it was sort of you know this is uh, you know about about six years or so after Titanic and and DiCaprio was still sort of like it, it trying to find his his uh find a rhythm that was separate from from Jack you know and to me it felt like Aviator was like his first grown up performance after after Titanic where I was able to be like man he's He's doing something really distinct. Although, you know, I liked him in Gangs of New York, but but I think it, him and Scorsese really found their rhythm. Yeah, it as as a biopic, I was, you know, I feel like it's one of the earliest examples I can think of, of in my experience, where a biopic focuses on a, a, a specific window of time within the person's life as opposed to doing a cradle-to-grave thing. Mm-hmm. And and I I find that refreshing personally because I think it's better to go deep than to try to go wide, you know. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna jump into the aviator and talk about that. But this is such an interesting film in his filmography because Martin Scorsese is not a stranger to biopic movies. Obviously, Raging Bolt being one of the most famous uh, biography movies mm-hmm. that has ever been made, and. The Aviator, what I find so fascinating is, and it's specifically in reading some of the criticism of this film, is people talking about the scatterbrain quality of this movie and also some of people having issues with the linear structure of this movie. And both of those are criticisms that I don't fully understand or even agree with. But The Aviator, watching it for the first time, I had such an enjoyable experience getting into this. I remember watching this movie a while ago. Uh, I'm trying to think when the first time I had watched this movie. It was probably early college would be my guess. So I'm probably about 18 or 19 when I watched this movie. And I remember it's a period where I'm really interested in DiCaprio as a movie star. Because he, 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 as you said, he works with James Cameron, makes Titanic, and becomes like the biggest heartthrob slash celebrity Mm -hmm. of all time. And it really would have been easy for him to stay in that mode. He really could have done the romantic comedy, kind of taking the Matthew McConaughey approach to movie stardom of the early 2000s, starring along Kate Hudson or uh, uh, some of the other actresses, Cameron Diaz of that time. And he does very much the exact opposite. He works specifically with 
and I, if I'm correct, he has these three movies in a row, and it's Gangs of New York, Catch Me If You Can, and then The Aviator, which is Scorsese, Spielberg, Scorsese, like back to back to back, like which is a pretty crazy combo. And it's The Aviator, what I find so fascinating about is more so than Gangs of New York, because Gangs of New York is Leo at the he's almost trying to play catch up with Daniel Day-Lewis where Daniel Day-Lewis is out acting him in every yeah. scene and DiCaprio is really just trying to hold his own. And then catch me if you can, he's next to Tom Hanks who's one of the most famous beloved actors of all times. And Hanks is incredible in that movie and DiCaprio is as well, but that is again, him trying to kind of live up to Tom Hanks. This is the first movie of his where he really gets to be, in that Daniel Day Lewis, that Tom Hanks spot of this position to succeed. And yeah. so it's an actor kind of feeling himself out. And he does so too, I think, really brilliant degrees. And then moments where it's just like, oh, had he waited another five years, you could have seen another layer of this actor because we know where DiCaprio went in his yeah. career. I agree with that. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, so that was kind of my approach watching this movie was again watching it and now knowing where we have with Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, career at this point and just the range that he can do. And I guess my question for you is because you specifically had requested The Aviator. I think I gave you a list of, I don't remember how many titles I gave you, but I gave you a handful. And I think I had some like pretty premier titles still on Scorsese's like availability. And you asked for The Aviator. So what was it that drew you into wanting to discuss this movie in particular? Well, uh, primarily, it, you know, it would give me an excuse to revisit the film. You know, I, mm. I had I had not seen it the whole way through for for quite a while, and I was like, oh no, this you know, it's one of those things where you're like, oh man, it's three hours, I got to find the time, and this is like, no, no, it's you know, it's like I can I can sit down, I can rewatch the movie, and and you know, it's been long enough since I've seen it that I mean, I'm at a very different stage in my life when I watched it. I had no kids. I now have five kids. And, and you know, and and it's interesting because because de to, to your point about about DiCaprio's relative uh, maturity just as an actor, you know, it's like I'm I'm much more cognizant of of that watching it now because as you say, you know, we're able to view it as a point in his career continuum and we we see his his latter performances and so you're able to see sort of oh okay uh, you know, the, the, this is sort of closer to the, the Titanic era Leo than, you know, killers of the flower moon, uh, uh Leo. Yeah. That, that's an excellent way of describing that because you're right. You do see the boyish charm of this movie. When I say he's five years too young for this role, it's not even a criticism of necessarily the acting that he hits in this movie. It's just something when you're watching the movie, it almost has that, I'm blanking on the way to describe it where it almost looks a little off-putting where it's just like, he's a little too young in some of these scenes where you can just see it's, it almost has uncanny Valley at times where you're watching. And it's just like, something's not fully clicking with me. And yet I think he's excellent in those scenes. And yeah. I, one of my favorite things about Scorsese is I think that's often a pretty common criticism in Martin Scorsese movies. I've talked about it before, but it's like this idea of, Martin Scorsese is so good at pointing out young talent and giving them the opportunities to shine, even though they're about five years probably removed from what will be kind of their pinnacle 
their best avail uh their best skills as an actor i think leonardo dicaprio is a perfect example of it but i also think of someone like andrew garfield in silence where i'm just like andrew mm. garfield in silence is probably too young to play this role and is a little too youthful for certain scenes and he just isn't quite there fully as an actor yet and i, I think he's amazing in silence but it's just it's just a little young and he's able to kind of do this time and time again he discovers young actors and actresses and puts them in the position kind of a power and just kind of gives them the freedom i mean i even think of someone like uh matt damon in the departed is another guy that just he fully just works in that movie and that's him kind of capturing that movie stardom quality i think when we talk about scorsese we talk about him being such an incredible auteur and all of that and a visionary director we also forget he is an incredible director of movie stardom and yeah. knowing what it means to be movie star. And that's so focused on the aviator as well, because he gets that understanding of that knowledge from the 1930s and how he depicts it in the aviator. What was your favorite point of this movie, like going back and revisiting? Was it the performances? Was it the set design? Was it just not remembering how the movie unfolded? Well, de definitely that last part, you know, it, it had been long enough that it felt like a, like a virtually new experience. You know, there was mm. echoes of, of it that that lasted in my memory. I was uh, I was uh, really tracking with the the progression of uh, of Howard's uh, OCD mm. uh, as we go through it. You know, I was much more uh, sort of seeing the little things that that Leo does throughout. And, I, you know, I just the, the little the nuances of, of his performance in there. But the other thing also is. The way in which uh, the the um, you know the the style of photography is reflective of the rel the respective eras in which we were seeing mm. the film, you know. So there's kind of more of a technicolor uh, approach at certain points and stuff. And I'm like, you know, it. Oh, and and of course when um, when we see the clip of Al Jolson and you know from the jazz singer, uh, there's always that like you know Marty loves cinema and he wants to weave in cinema history as much as much as he can you know yeah no i think it's one of the most fun aspects of this movie is the change of color uh throughout where it reflects the 1920s then you get technicolor of the 1930s and it shapes uh the what's it called it shapes the experience of watching this movie and i think it also does this incredible job of kind of showing who Howard Hughes is. And it's this relevancy that he is able to work in both the 1920s, the 1930s, the 1940s, the 1950s, and be this kind of stunning example of a, an entrepreneur, an innovator, who's always able to stay relevant throughout the times, where it's so hard for a career to last, let alone 10 years, let alone four decades or however long mm -hmm. Howard Hughes worked. Obviously the story of Howard Hughes ends in pretty big tragedy by the yeah. end, just with who he becomes. But that is a point that Scorsese makes in this movie is Howard Hughes is generally when he is focused on aviation, he generally seems to be right. And that's also something that we see in the films. He understands that early on, sound is going to be the future of film where everyone else says, no, you've got to make Hell's Angels, like just release it as it is. We can't spend more money on it. He's like, no, this film needs to be in sound. And they reshoot the whole film uh, to make sure that it's in sound. But it's again, this innovation quality of him. And I think that's what Martin Scorsese respects 
in him. This was a really fun experience to do it back to back watching the aviator maybe about two months ago versus watching the aviator again today, hmm. which was the moment of kind of getting to, and essentially it's the killers of the flower moon press hearing Scorsese talk about film, film preservation and kind of his battles with the studio. I read someone on Twitter today and I, I, I forget who it was. So I apologize for that, but they basically said like Netflix and Apple TV have allowed Scorsese to make movies that otherwise would not be financial financially successful and yeah. it's kind of the backing of you gotta and it's i think something scorsese wisely understands is sometimes it's the uncomfortable bedfellows situation right like you have yeah. to just get into bed that with people that you don't really want to do do so with but you're doing it because you have something that you want to make and that's kind of what the aviator to a degree is about it's leonardo DiCaprio as howard hughes struggling to kind of be his own man and also knowing where he has to concede and where he has to give and uh, take, et cetera, et cetera. And it's so meta-textually rich Mm -hmm. as much as it is true to the story of Howard Hughes. Did you know much about Howard Hughes before going into this movie? Uh, Only the very broad strokes. As I said, my very first exposure to Hughes existence was watching the rocketeer when i was Mm. uh 11 years old and and you know my brother being like oh yeah he was real guy you know and and so that was my initial con you know perception of him was from that and then you know throughout the the 90s you know uh i had learned more about his his eccentricities and and i watched uh uh, diamonds are forever Mm. and in the course of reading up on that film you know you realize like he was really kind of cuckoo bananas by by the end of his life and and so that by the time the film came out i had not by any means an encyclopedic knowledge of howard hughes but i I knew enough of like beginning middle and end to sort of have have a framework within which to take the film in yeah it's an interesting thing with me for howard hughes because obviously i'm studying american history society culture which howard hughes is a main figure in And I really, even going into The Aviator, I couldn't have said much about Howard Hughes outside of the broad strokes. I knew he was obviously fascinated by aviation. I knew he was a Hollywood figure, and I knew his kind of OCD, paranoia, uh, germaphobe, all that just kind of ended up being the kind of classic, like, at the end of your life, shell of a man type Mm -hmm. story. And that was my relationship with Howard Hughes, which made this film fun to watch because I, I and I, I guess let's kind of get into the criticisms of this movie if you believe they are valid or what, but the movie is scatterbrained and it's deliberately so, I believe, but it is scatterbrained. Yeah. I, 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 I adore aspects of this movie and there's also periods of this movie that I find a little dull. Uh, I, this is a kind of a mixed bag for me at times. I think when the movie soars, it succeeds incredibly. And then there are moments where the film, I do feel the two hours in 50 minutes. Has your fil- has your relationship with The Aviator changed upon rewatch? Uh, not fundamentally, because, because uh, I, I think my, my initial uh, sense was I, I admired the movie, and I still do, uh, however, you know, it was not a film that I felt 
compelled to revisit, you know, like like some of Scorsese's other ones. And and having rewatched it now, I I'm grateful for that experience. But yeah, I, you know, it there's sort of a uh episodic is the wrong word, but it's sort of like these vignettes that that comprise the the film and and um I I think you know it it I personally didn't find it uh, a, a barrier to entry, but I, you know, I, I know that some other people have said that, and I, I, I do think there's validity to it. So mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of he- held together by Leo's performance and about like how, how much are you on board with what he's doing, and do you, how much do you uh, find the character appealing? And you know, I mean, I think I don't, I think Hughes, as depicted in the film, is complicated. I don't know that he's particularly um, likable, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and. And so it's kind of like, how much do I want to, how much time do I want to spend with this guy? You know, I, you know, I had the same question you were kind of asking, which is just like, how likable is Hughes as depicted in this film? I actually, even watching it a second time, I struggled with that. If how much does Scorsese respect Hughes versus how mm. much does he like Hughes? Because I certainly think there is an autobiographical nature of Scorsese directing this movie about oh, how for sure. Like there is certainly like this aspect of this movie where you can see him relate to Hughes. You can see this kind of like character who's so kind of on top of the world in his understanding of a certain uh, aspect of uh, it's not life, but technology and wants to convince everyone else that his way is the right way. Mm -hmm. And throughout, he just kind of has critics kind of, pushing him down basically saying like oh you know that's either wrong or oh you can't do this that way or oh in particular where i think it's very autobiographical is oh that is the incorrect way to spend money which right it's like kind of the story of scorsese's career is just he gets an amount of money for a movie and then the studio is like you cannot get that amount of money we're gonna cut your budget in half like that's kind of the repeat of Scorsese's career is just that. And that's where I think he relates on the other aspect. There's the darker qualities to Howard Hughes, which I didn't actually notice as much in the first time, but the second time you really do notice him going a little harder on Hughes. I mean, one of the more emotionally resonant scenes is the scene where he just slaps his girlfriend at the time. I'm blanking on which actress uh, that is. I want to, it's not Jean Harlow. I'm blanking on who it is, but he just, you know, he he slaps her in a very emotional uh in a moment of emotional frustration for the Howard Hughes moment character. And you see that in then Scorsese understanding the anger that comes with a life lived like this. Yeah. And for me, I found that rewarding. And again, I think this is that idea of seeing it for the first and second time recently let's just kind of talk about kind of the big scenes in this movie for a bit. What was the scene for you that either sums up the movie or you think is the scene that you love returning to? That's a good question. You know, well, the, the stuff that, that uh, is a small moment, but it, it really stuck out to me just because of the sort of what you see on, on DiCaprio's face. It's when, um, when he's at dinner with with uh, uh, Hepburn and and Errol Flynn shows up and he eats the pea off his plate, mm-hmm. and just the look on his face, you know, and it's like 
if you know, you know, right? Like that's yeah. the beauty of it. When you're watching the film, if you know Hughes's history, then you're like, oh, okay, it's starting here. But you know, I I would love to talk to an audience member who has no idea what you know what eventually would happen with Hughes's life. And it's like, what do you make of that scene? You know, it's just the performance. It's just on his face. You know. Yeah, I. That's a really good scene, and it also hits on that Technicolor aspect of this movie where the pee looks purple. It's mm-hmm. kind of like yep. purple and blue tint because he's now working with Technicolor. And I think that's the moments where Leo is at his best. Again, it's not that he's bad in this role. I think he's quite good in this role. But he is someone that works with accents and gets better with his ability mm-hmm. to use an accent as his career goes along. The accent does come in and out at times of this yeah. movie. It never bothered me per se, but I did notice the accent at times getting lost, especially in some of the more emotional scenes where he's kind of asked to be very loud. The accent fades away with it. Uh, With that still said, where he excels, and I think he's only gone to excel even further with his acting style, is those moments you talked about, right? Which is the softer moments, the scenes where it's all expressions one of my favorite ones it actually i think happens maybe in the same scene it's where he goes to the bathroom and he starts just washing his hands to the point Mm. that he starts bleeding that is just another just example of scorsese understanding the story that he wants to tell and leonardo dicaprio understanding what he wants to get from hughes which is scorsese is commenting on the entrepreneur the uh, the Hollywood, the the bigger, larger-than-life character. And DiCaprio is really kind of focusing in on the, the details, the small little mm-hmm. things that make this person come to life. And I think that's why DiCaprio and Scorsese have always worked well together. It's just this perfect combination of it. Is there any other scenes for you that you just you go back to? Um. Not so much that I go back to, but you know, definitely the the what what comes to mind is obviously the 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 end of the film when he just kind of he has that sort of that breakdown, you know, and as as a I, the choice that that Scorsese had to to uh, choose that as roughly where the story ends, you know, I think it's a it's a good place of progression from where the film starts to where it ends. Yeah, and let's let's kind of explore that idea because it goes from the end and it's kind of a perfect summation of what this movie begins with, which the beginning of this movie is the mother of Howard Hughes basically like having him spell out quarantine, learn, warning him of this flu that's taking people's lives. And it starts this, as at least as the writer believes it, this OCD quality mm-hmm. of Scorsese's life. Did this scene work for you? Because I have some hesitancies with this scene. Uh, in, in terms of the ending? No, or, sorry, or... the beginning of the film, the beginning of with the mother talking. Um, I, you know, I, I, it's kind of, I, I, I think it's a net neutral for me in that hmm. I don't, I don't think it, I, it's not, it's not a negative, but it's, it feels very sort of functional. Like, okay, we're in a very, we're going to establish in sort of a shorthand way what the the root of our protagonist's deal is, you know. Uh, and then see, seeing the film sort of circle back to that, you're like, okay, so we're kind of tying a bow around it. But I, I wouldn't say it's 
I mean, you know, far be it from me to to question uh, John Logan or Martin Scorsese's uh, creative choices. So I'm kind of like, okay, well, I guess if that's where you want to, uh, if that's what you want to serve as the jump off point, I'm fine with that. I will say this though, I'm 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 glad, and I alluded to this earlier. I'm glad that it's not we're not living in the childhood stuff. It's just it's a brief in and out, and then we we jump ahead, you know, 25 years or whatever it is. Yeah, someone explained the scene to me as kind of being Citizen Kane quality, right? Where it's like sure. you explore the basically where the character ends by going back to the beginning, the sled idea of Citizen Kane, mm-hmm. and this yeah. being the mother relationship, and this being the start of the OCD. I I took, I wouldn't say issue, that's the wrong word to describe it. I had some hesitancy in the scene because it's very much shorthanded. It's just... Yeah. We're going to get this scene and that's going to kind of explain a lot of the OCD qualities. I understand why. And I'm glad. Here's what I should say. I'm glad we, that, like you said, we didn't get more of this childhood at the same point. It felt like, okay, this is the fundamental thing you need to understand. And then we were not going to really touch on his childhood again or explore that. So it really did feel a little disconnected from the rest of the movie, even though I understand why it is in there. And it's, it, I have some issue with how it portrays OCD like mm. qualities where it's just like sure. it almost I don't know if it captures the root of the issue where it's just like oh Howard Hughes mom told him to wash his hands because of a virus and that affected him for the his whole life now it also does though touch on something that this movie very much focuses on is the Freudian complex uh, which is right. very prevalent uh, throughout this movie, but kind of jumping into this movie, we start Howard Hughes is filming Hell's Angels, rewrites script, uh, filming scenes, black and uh, sorry, converts to sound the rap party. We kind of start to meet everyone, and that's where the movie really starts. We get uh, Kate Blanchett is introduced in this movie as Audrey Hepburn, uh, and then we start getting the other cast of characters, including John C. Riley, Adam Scott, and a really young, really I don't, I don't particularly like the performance in it. It's very big and it's very <laughs> accent driven where it's just like, Hey, old champ, like that. But <laughs> I, I, it, I, it is what he's doing, but like. He's, he's oh, doing like dialogue out of a Howard Hughes produced uh, movie, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, he's hitting it right. And I like Adam Scott a lot. It's just, it's not working for me. The, yeah. where Adam Scott's not working for me. I think Sean C. Riley is great in this movie just like exceptionally good um i I gotta ask you about this because i i have some thoughts Catherine hepburn in this movie uh audrey hepburn uh catherine why am i mixing up which one is it Catherine. Catherine. okay i always i always i never know hepburn's name i always slips my mind and putting (laughs) it live on air i'm just like oops i'm not gonna know it uh hepburn played by kate blanchett this is the Oscar that wins, or this is the performance that wins her her first Oscar. Do you like this performance? There's a long pause here. Yeah, uh, I, I personally, I had to sort of mentally shift gears to be like, she's playing Catherine Hepburn. Just go with it, mm-hmm. because to me, she does she. The voice doesn't seem very like she's kind of she's playing a role and it's it's mm-hmm. fine. But I I don't know. I, I've 
it felt to me like this was like, okay, well, we got to give Kate Blanchett an Oscar and, and this is the next one in the shoot. It, I think she's delivered better performances and it's not her fault. I think she's fine, but I, I don't, it doesn't particularly evoke Catherine Hepburn for me. Okay. I have the same issue and I will just say, I'm not an all old Hollywood guy, not in the sense mm. that I don't watch the movies. It's just that my knowledge of it is more read than it is actually watched. Sure. sure. Uh, I not to say that I have a disconnect with those films, but it's sometimes harder for me to get into those. So I don't really have this huge relationship with Hepburn and watching this movie again. So I'm kind of going into it with a blank slate on the, I'm not necessarily knowing who this Hepburn character is the way they're going to portray her, even the mannerism. So Kate Blanchett can kind of work with a blank canvas for me. And Kate Blanchett Blanchett is a really good actress. And in this movie, I don't think she's bad. Like by no yeah. qualities do I think she's bad. She's fine. I think that you kind of summed it up. She's fine. She is perfectly serviceable. I think the part is pretty underwritten. And I just, she doesn't do anything that ex- outstanding for me in the sense that like, you know, she doesn't have this. I, there's not really a memorable Hepburn scene outside of the family dinner and her breaking up with, uh, DiCaprio uh, as Howard right. Hughes in this movie, I it was kind of this weird thing because right like because again hadn't seen this movie in a long time was like okay, Kate Blanchett is one of my favorite actresses working today, and if you look at her two Oscar wins, it's probably for the, her two performances I care the least about, which is <laughs> her in this movie and her in Blue Jasmine directed by Woody Allen. They're just two right. of the performances, and I'm just like this is kind of the least interesting work. And I think she's better in Blue Jasmine in fairness, but it's just, yeah, it's a struggle for me. And watching this movie, a lot of the, a lot of the female characters go a little underserved for me throughout. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Yeah. Okay. The one that I will give credit to, I, and she's in the film for so little amount of time. Gwen Stefani is really good. I, she really is. She's really good in this role, and she looks exactly like her character. I yeah. thought she was really good. And then there's, I'm trying to remember, I'm pulling up the IMDb right now. The, Do you remember the actress who plays the 16-year-old love interest for Howard Hughes? Oh. Um, I'm looking gosh. it up. It is, oh my gosh. Is it Kelly Garner? I think it's Kelly Garner. She plays, in the movie, she plays Faith of... I cannot pronounce her last name. Faith Demarger. Demarger. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's her last name? You're probably going to do a better job than I am. Uh, I'm going to. D-O-M-E-R-G-U-E. Yeah, I, I think it's Demerge, right? I, that's how I've heard. Yeah. Okay. I, I, the, I saw the name and I started reading. I'm like, oh, this is not going to uh, go well. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm just like, mm, that's the mental disconnect that I have. She's actually quite good in this movie as well. This is, we mentioned like favorite moments already. This was one of the moments in the film that I really liked was the introduction of this faith character and kind of that meta textual element of this movie that I guess we should get into. This is produced by Miramax. Harvey Weinstein is like the guy at Miramax. They had a rough relationship. Scorsese and, uh, Weinstein had a rough relationship uh, during Gangs of New York. 
uh, Harvey being kind of now a notorious, horrible person to work for, uh, one as a filmmaker and then two for every other just, reason. Just as a human being. Yeah. yeah, as a human being. Uh, there is this moment and it feels very intentional because it this character of Faith doesn't have much to do in this movie. It's yeah. this moment where Howard Hughes posts the breakup with Hepburn is almost kind of doing a casting couch with who is right. going to be his new like star. And right. it's a very uncomfortable scene, the way he's just kind of pried in the corner, kind of just staring at her body, co making comments, asking her her age. She reveals she's 16. It's very predatory. It's kind of a tone that the movie never really hits again. Hmm. Uh, it also feels very directly tied into who Harvey Weinstein is and everything everyone kind of knew about Harvey Weinstein. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, knowing who he is, but right. it's a very deliberate scene and it's a very well, uncomfortable I, scene. And I think you're right. I mean, I mean, look, it, it, there is obviously a, an element of, of hindsight, but I mean, mm -hmm. in 2004, people knew Harvey Weinstein was a piece of crap. You know, I, mm -hmm. I, I say this all the time, you know, I grew up in, uh, the Midwest in the Chicago suburbs. And I was a, you know, I was a film buff, uh, you know, in 1995 and I knew Harvey Weinstein was a piece of crap and it's not cause I was, had some great insight. I'm just like, it was an open secret, you know? Yeah. There were like a few that I remember like growing up and then like getting into the film uh, journalism industry was there were kind of three. It was Harvey Weinstein Bill Cosby was the open secret as well. Mm -hmm. Everyone kind of yeah. knew Bill Cosby. And then the third one was Kevin Spacey. The Kevin Spacey stuff by the end, I was starting to hear that for a few years mm. pre it. Like that was like another of those open secrets that like you just kind of heard about. And Weinstein in particular is kind of the now, I, I hate to use the word classic example, but sure. the classic example of a producer who's only in it to sexually harass and assault yeah. young female actresses who are impressionable and want to break into this industry. And that moment with Faith is pretty upsetting. It's a very yeah. upsetting scene. I agree. Uh, I'm trying to think of the, oh, I will say, let me ask you this, and I'm curious if we'll come up with the same answer. Besides DiCaprio, let's take DiCaprio off the board. Who's your favorite supporting actor uh, slash actress in this movie? Oh, Alan Aldo is terrific. Okay, he, I mean, he's yeah. incredible in this movie to me. I love Alda in this yeah. movie. I he's a guy that I really only know from Bill Hader's SNL impression from him. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure. and I, I've gone back and I've watched Alan Aldo, so I do have a understanding of who he is as an actor and yeah. what he brought. But like, it, it was so funny because I couldn't really say I could identify what Alan Alda looked like. Mm -hmm. the exact second he started talking i'm like oh that's bill hader's impression like done perfectly yeah oh bill hader's expression impression excuse me is like next level it is it is pitch perfect i i couldn't believe it and then where i'm like i'm like that must be alan alda and i google it i'm like yep that's alan alda he is <laughs> phenomenal in this movie like yeah knockout performance the one performance that it actually reminded me a lot and again this is always kind of recency bias where it's just like Oh, that's a performance that that really like echoes is Robert Downey Jr. and Oppenheimer. hundred percent. Yep. They, Absolutely. They're serviced in the same way yeah. in this movie and, or in their respective. Yeah. I, I had that exact, like w without, 
you articulating it, you're like, yeah, that's what I was thinking when I was rewatching it, you know? Yeah, because I think I watched The Aviator right before Oppenheimer. Okay. So it was like, you know, you go into that, you then go into Oppenheimer, and then you rewatch this, and I'm like, oh my God, that's like a perfect echo of what those true filmmakers are interested in. And they also then kind of have those great takedown scenes where you yeah. see Alda just brought down basically his, his knees as his plan fails, as he's out there to basically publicly humiliate uh, Howard Hughes. And Hughes does the exact same thing to him. He just publicly yeah. humiliates him. It's, I think Alda is incredible in this movie. I know we're running close to the hour well, and, mark. And oh, real, sorry, real quick, let me, let me real quick, let me just say that, that, uh, you know, Alan Alda, who was and, and is, you know, best known for playing Hawkeye Pierce, like the most mm. likable, one of the most likable TV characters of all time, especially at that time. Uh, it was like this, you know, revelatory, like uh, heel turn for him. And it was just refreshing to see that, you know? Yeah, no, I totally agree. And there's a lot of actors in this movie that kind of get those moments. And they also usually are typically best served under a director like Scorsese. I, yeah. Adam, uh, sorry, Adam, Alec Baldwin is an actor who I could be pretty mixed on, but when he works for me, I love Alec Baldwin. Like in 30 Rock, I think it's a perfect use of Alec Baldwin in uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, another just great use. Scorsese yeah. usually gets a good use out of him. I think he's hilarious in The Departed. And in this movie, he does exactly what he's asked to do. He is essentially the Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross character. Yeah. Just, yeah kind of bullying his way around. And he's so just, I'm trying to think of the best word. Alec Baldwin plays like the perfect corporate villain. Like no one else plays yeah. douchey corporate guy like Baldwin. <laughs> uh, it's funny and, too, because I'm I'm in the middle of a 30 Rock rewatch currently. Hmm. And so I went from that to this and I'm like, I had to like sort of shift my, my expectations from Jack Donaghy, but I'm like, eh, it's, kind of jack donaghy you know <laughs> yeah oh yeah no totally i think i think when he is hitting the jack donaghy quality i yeah. think that's when baldwin is kind of at his best is there anything else that i'm trying to think if there's anything else that we should talk about before uh ending this discussion moving on oh i guess we should talk about the ending because it's a very memorable ending yeah the panic attack that he essentially has. And I also think it's DiCaprio's best use in this movie is when he's yeah, fully breaking down. And I think that for me, rewatching it, I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm trying to think of the analogy and I'm going to see if this makes sense. There's always a moment where you realize that an actor is going to be special and you can point to that one moment early on in their career. And you're like, that is the moment they have the juice the literal A Star is Born moment where even in the newest film where Lady Gaga starts singing Shallows on stage mm -hmm. and I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, like Lady Gaga is going to be an actress and she will be of note for quite a while in, act in acting <laughs> if she chooses to do so. That was kind of the moment for DiCaprio in this movie for me where he's having mm -hmm. this breakdown where he starts like kind of moving. The It's everything kind of coming together and I don't know if you know this about the Aviator, this is a passion project for specifically Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. Michael Mann was supposed to direct this movie in the 1990s, which kind of looks like he might be doing something pretty similar with Ferrari. Which That's right. Yeah. Pretty in line with The Aviator. He decides not to do it because he does The, insni uh, the Insider and he does uh, 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 Ali. Ali. That's, thank you. Yeah. He does Ali 
back to back. And he's like, I don't want to just be the biopic guy. So he makes Miami vice, which or collateral and then Miami vice, which just King shit right there. Uh, the, so Scorsese gets it. Cause the other director, and I, this is the part that I didn't know that I find fascinating. Do you know who the other director who wanted to do this movie was? I, I, it's on the tip of my tongue. Yeah. We actually just talked about him a few minutes ago. It's Christopher Nolan. Nolan, that's right. Yeah, and he does. Uh, he he was gonna have Jim Carrey. Yes, Jim Carrey. That's right. Jim Carrey yeah. was supposed to be Howard Hughes in his version. Which, and I know, uh, uh, Nolan has talked about still having like an idea for that movie and still maybe one day making his Howard Hughes, uh, biopic. I mean, to me, to me, Oppenheimer scratched so much of that same itch right like <laughs> i think i think that's the thing i think i don't know if we'll ever see that movie but you could also see why someone like nolan would appreciate the howard hughes story and find the eccentricities of it and bring it to life leonardo DiCaprio also sees in the moment where he's like howard hughes is a movie star and if i can nail this role i'll be famous mm -hmm. too like i'll be yeah. that star and yeah kind of does like because post the aviator it's departed like pretty soon after with Blood Diamond that same year. And his stardom mm -hmm. just all the way up, skyrockets all the way up. So that's how I kind of read that final scene, not necessarily even in the context of the film, more of just watching and being like, oh, that's the moment where DiCaprio becomes DiCaprio. Yeah. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you want to do before we kind of wrap this up? No, I think we covered it. I, I'm. I also. I, I find it refreshing uh, that there's no. Uh, here's what happened after text stuff on the screen. You know, it's just. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like you. Yeah, you can research that shit yourself. This is this is this movie. You know. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, I totally agree. I think that's also what works because I, we had talked about like this film being a little bit where I think some people were degraded as being a little bit too much of a standard biopic. Which in certain scenes it certainly is. It does go yeah. kind of linear order A to B to C. It's a little disconnected where it's just like, we're going to spend like the first hour of him being the Hollywood star. And then the last two hours or more of his aviation. Then we have to do the plane crash in 1946. Then we have to do this trial with the senator in the early 1950s. I do love this idea that you just talked about though, right? Where the film doesn't end with, basically kind of the downfall of his life, like the 30 years later of we don't see what a lot of standard biopics would do, which is him older, kind of recluse, living, dying in Vegas, I believe is where he spends the last few years of his life, like just shut right. in in his small little house or wherever he's living. I forget exactly. I think it was an apartment of some sorts in Vegas. I'm not positive on that. But like yeah. that could have been the very standard way to end this movie. And they don't do it. It you see the creeping sadness coming in from what this man's life is about to do, but it also gives him enough dignity to be like, this is tragic. And yet you can also see a life that was fully lived. I agree. So that is kind of my thoughts on the aviator. So before we leave, I have three questions that I ask all of my guests. So we'll start with the two that are kind of tied in together. The first one being, who is an actor that never got the chance to work with Martin Scorsese when they were alive that you would have loved to have seen work with Martin Scorsese? The second part of that question being, who's an actor who's still alive who's never gotten the chance to work with Scorsese that you would love to see star or be in a Scorsese movie, I should say? 
uh heath ledger for the first mm-hmm. uh harrison ford for the second i so give me explain those ones because i i, I love the harrison ford one but the heath ledger one what is it about heath ledger well i, I mean the in sort of in when we peer through the multiverse through the, you know into that world where he is still among us it feels like an inevitability that he would have been in a in a scorsese movie you know i i uh i look at like jesse plemons in kill uh, you know Killers of the flower moon i'm like i could see heath ledger playing that role you know uh and and that that idea of like what he would do um working with with scorsese i mean it's like you know what i mean it really it just feels Mm -hmm. like that would have happened for sure that would have happened and we never got that chance no i totally agree with that i think the heath ledger one is a great call and i it is just the case of a career gone too soon where you're right he would have worked with martin scorsese at some point what about the harrison ford one I mean, you know, Harrison Ford is in sort of the character actor phase of his career, you know, so kind of uh, playing, uh, you know, roles like like De Niro in Killers of the Flower Moon in terms of like a really prominent supporting role. And so, uh, you know, as the movie star facade sort of comes away, you want to see him do something that really takes into account the fact that, you know, he's a living legend and yet amazingly he's never worked with Scorsese. Well, let's let's see that happen. I want to see that. No, I agree. It's the weird one. Cause it's Meryl Streep and Harrison Ford, two of the biggest yeah. movie stars who just have never gotten the chance to work with Scorsese. Maybe the project's never aligned. Maybe they pass. Who knows? I have two answers as well. I will say for actor who has passed away, and it made me think of it because I he starred in a movie. I don't remember it was called The Aviator or Aviation. It was in like 1985. Christopher Reeve. Yeah, Christopher The Aviator. Yep. The Aviator was, it's again, this example of one of the most exciting things about watching an actor is watching them grow older and mm-hmm. how they come to understand their craft and get a hold of it. And if you always, when I listen to Christopher Reeve, that's always something I got from him was yeah. he was someone very keenly aware, keenly aware of his craft and his ability as an actor to convey an emotion and to kind of talk to an audience and show what was going on and show human emotion. I think of so much of just the interviews where he's so passionately talking about what the role of Superman means and the role that he puts into that. I just... Yeah. You know, he gets to appear in Smallville post the accident, but very much in a tragic way, the aviator that he starred in, like, you know, he has the same kind of tragedy that befalls Howard Hughes, different yeah. uh, because his actually leaves him fully paralyzed. Uh, and, you know, he still gets to act a little bit, like I said, in Smallville, but it's again just that moment of we never got to see an actor kind of age uh, yeah, yeah. in an emotional way. So I would have well loved said. to see that. Uh, the one who is still alive, and I was looking it up just to make sure it's never happened, and I actually kind of can't believe it hasn't happened. And I hope I haven't answered it before. Maybe I have. Gary Oldman is... Wow. <laughs> yeah, I I had to look it up because I'm like, Gary Oldman has to have been in a Scorsese. I can't find a single title suggesting yeah, I don't believe uh, that so. he's yeah. in it, even as a side character. Oldman's the ultimate freak on screen. Like, when Oldman commits to scary he is scary and just so off-putting and 
it's one of those challenges where you're such a great character actor that any movie Scorsese has made, it feels like Gary Oldman could be slotted in, whether it's Mean Streets, whether mm -hmm. it's Taxi Driver, whether it's even like After Hours, King of Comedy, or jumping to like Hugo. You could see him in any of those movies. And yeah. his ability to transform to that, I think is exceptional. And I would have loved to see that. And I hope, who knows how many more films Martin has in him. Uh, but I would love to see a Gary Oldman performance like that because I also think Gary Oldman can often be an actor for hire and he's usually quite right. good in those movies, but it's right. just, I don't want to see him doing the Hitman's bodyguard. I just would prefer him <laughs> spending his time with uh, Scorsese. Uh, so this brings us to the last question, the hardest question of all. Your top five Martin Scorsese titles. Five. This is one. a tough one. Yeah, I had to, I, five, five to one, you said, okay. Um, so Color of Money is a uh, uh, one of my favorites. I I really like that movie. I feel like it doesn't get talked about enough, but I think it's terrific. Uh, uh, Hugo would be number four. Uh, Casino would be number three. The Departed, number two. And uh, I got to go with The Goodfellas, number one. Perfect. I, I love The Color of Money, love. We don't get that many guests who say The Color of Money. I think we've had one or two, but... I, I think it's an exceptionally good movie. Uh, yeah. So how do you have it? Uh, please let the people know where they can find you. Yeah, sure. Well, I'm I'm on social media uh, at Zaki's Corner. That's Z A K I S Corner. I'm still, uh, I you know, I'm hanging around uh, uh, what used to be Twitter, but you can find me on Blue Sky and Threads and Instagram at Z A K I S Corner. Uh, also, I would love if people checked out the movie film podcast. That's movie film, one word. And uh, wherever you get podcasts, you can find that. And my reviews uh, are uh, uh, seen regularly at the San Francisco Chronicle and also at IGN. I also write for The Wrap. And I will make sure to have those links down in this description below. I still haven't gotten my Blue Sky invitation, so still waiting around oh, well, for that. We'll, uh, we'll have to take care of that for you. Oh, perfect. If you don't mind sending me one, that would be fantastic. I can't wait to yeah. experience the blue sky over from the darkness that is X as it currently exists. But uh, with that all said, thank you so much for joining me. And I will be back tomorrow with The Departed. Joining me is Jeff Snyder. So look forward to that episode. Thank you all for watching. Take care.